This is uh, Hekigandoku case 100. Paling's blown hair sold. The pointer. All summer I've been verbosely making up complications and almost entangled and tripped up all the monks in the land. But when the diamond sold cuts directly, I first realized my hundredfold incompetence. But tell me, what is the diamond sold like? Open your eyes and I'll reveal the sold point for you to see. The main case. A monk asked Paling, what is the blown hair sold? Paling said, each branch of cor coral supports the moon. The verse. When, this, when it is necessary to even the uneven, even the great adepts seem inept. He does not stare sound or form. He hides his body, but reveals his shadow. Sometimes on the finger, sometimes in the palm. Leaning against the sky, it shines on the snow. Even the great smith cannot hone it. Even a master craftsman wouldn't finish polishing it. It is exceptional, unique. Each branch of coral supports the moon. Good afternoon. Good to see you again and again and again. We keep showing up. It's quite amazing. So today with this Zazenkai, we embark on the journey of our 90-day Ango. And it is a significant day that has a meaning since we all are about to raise intentions to take up specific commitments to act differently. And this day, appears to separate between yesterday and tomorrow. So on an expedient level, it will be correct to say that today is a special day. Yet we can also say that there is nothing special about this day at all. We just looked at the calendar, picked a date, and designated to be the first day of Ango. So it is only differentiated from all other days by our own designation, which is also correct. Now we call this particular day Sunday, March 27th. And we say that it has a beginning and it has an end. And we say that it contains 24 segments, which we then further divide to even smaller segments. And each one of those segments also have a beginning and an end. So while it will be true to say that each particular second, moment, hour, day, week, month, is unique, a unique segment with its own before and its own after, it will also be true to say that each particular segment is an expression of a totality that has no beginning and no end. And this 
unified and inseparable two truths are expressed and experienced through all levels of our existence. They manifest in this physical body we happen to occupy, in the way this body interacts with changing circumstances, in the way nature interacts with itself through countless encounters between sentient beings or insentient beings. It is an immutable essence that equally pervades everything, from the tiniest mote of dust all the way to endless galaxies. From the known, from the little known, to the vast unknown. But although it is so, our understanding of reality can be greatly hindered. As human beings, we are mostly blind to the segmentless quality within the segment, or the absolute within the relative. Or in other words, we are blind to the interpenetration of the seeming duality between the finite particularity and the all-inclusive and eternal totality. And this blindness has a dire effect on the way we go through life, on the way we are with each other, the way we are with our environment. And Buddhist teachings expose the fallacy of this seeming duality and offer a way to cut this harmful duality into one. But this, this cut is no ordinary cut. Logically, habitually, a cut implies the creation of division and separation which is how our thinking mind works when we meet reality on a conventional level through our five skandhas, form, perception, sensation, reaction, and consciousness. And this, so this kind of cut does the exact opposite. It unifies rather than divides. Or to be more precise, it exposes inherent unity. When we say it unifies... It's as if we're saying we have to put things together which are not unified now, but we have this special method that will bring them together. It's not true. We say it more as a way to understand something that is already inherently so. So it exposes Unity as inherent. But to make such a cut, we need a specific kind of implement, which is known as the sword of wisdom, the sword of Manjushri, as you see behind me. It is also sometimes referred to as the blown hair sword. And it is called that because the blade is so sharp that a single hair, if a single hair lands on it, just simply blown on it, it will immediately cut it. Just by 
it landing on the blade. So it is that sharp. And this is what the monk in this koan is inquiring about, this particular saw. He's asking Palin, what is this blown hair sword? Paling says, each branch of coral supports the moon. So with this imagery, Paling is pointing directly to the body and function of the sword. Each particular is not only a beautiful expression of the totality, it also supports it by being its manifestation, by allowing it to express itself. And this is equally so with every drop of ocean, every appearance, and every being. A unique ephemeral expression of timeless and endless galaxies. Corals, he's using this imagery of a coral. Corals are usually beneath the surface of the water. When we look at the ocean, we don't see corals. So to the naked eye, may not be available. So we find it difficult to see unity, not because it is hidden, but more so because we try to see it with the conventional eye and conceptualize it with conventional thinking. We need to acknowledge the limitation of our conventional ways and, and develop a better understanding of how to use it so we don't create the illusion of a segmented reality. And then, of course, get trapped in our own creation. Throughout the seventh century in China, few devout Buddhist monks and scholars dove deeply into the study of the Avatamsaka Sutra, the flower ornament scripture. And this sutra is based on what they realized or what they came up with as a study and their exploration. They established a school called the Huayan, which actually still exists in Japan known as the Kegon School. And the focus of the Avatamsaka Sutra and the Huayan School is interconnectedness. And it teaches the aspect of constant, mutual, and multi-dimensional interpenetration between particularity and totality. What can be seen and what cannot be seen are always in a state of permeation and flux in all directions. This is what it teaches. Or in other words, nothing is static, nothing has an independent existence, and everything affects everything all at once. Which, of course, is very difficult or impossible to grasp just hearing it. Because everything affects everything happens in all directions, happens without parameters. And it appears as if there's no entry point. And the Yen teaching offer a clear expression of the deep influence 
Taoism had on Buddhism in China. As Lao Tzu, the founder of Taoism, said, Return is the movement of the Tao. Yielding is the way of the Tao. All things are born of being. Being is born of non-being. The Tao is nowhere to be found, yet it nourishes and completes all things. The Tao gives birth to one, one gives birth to two, two gives birth to three, three gives birth to all things. This means that myriad independent things flow from oneness. And this oneness in turn derives from the Tao of nothingness or moon. Ultimately, both difference and unity return to the source, which is nothing. And there are different translations to the Avatamsaka Sutra and a few different books on the Huayan school. The one I want to focus on during this ango is titled The Buddhist Teachings of Totality by Gaoma Sisi Chang. So in the prologue, prologue Chang brings up the issue of self-centeredness and explains why it is fundamentally an error, which is very important to explore when we try to understand what these teachings are about or, or try to experience these teachings. It is important that we look at the way we create or the way the error is created. Because what these teachings are pointing at is nowhere else. It's not something that we have to figure out as much as realize how we distract ourselves from it. So this begins with a description of our conventional view of history and of the drama of the human existence. And then there is a quote from a book on history and religion written by Arnold Toynbee. And he says, self-centeredness is an intellectual error because no living creature is in truth the center of the universe. And it is also a moral error because no living creature has the right to act as if it were the center of the universe. It has no right to treat its fellow creatures, the universe and God or reality, as if they existed simply in order to minister to one self-centered living creature's demands. It's a good description of how, how we see ourselves as human beings. Right? It's a lucid statement which is in direct contrast to the way we see ourselves. Since we are on top of the food chain, we actually believe that we call the shots. That we are the ones influencing the world in a one-directional manner. And then Gama Sisi Chang adds to this, in contrast to this belief, the Buddhist tradition, especially the Mahayana, depicts the universe and the human drama in a completely different manner. The Buddhist view is a universal and all-inclusive. It does not claim the unique significance of human history as being the single performance drama written by God. 
And so within the all-inclusive and interrelated reality, we create the illusion of separate entities that seem to have a distinct and absolute boundaries of a beginning and an end. So not only that we create ourselves in such a way, we also create the environment or the illusion of the environment in such a way. And the way we relate to this environment is the same. Or the way we relate to each other, which begins with the way we see ourselves. So the next paragraph describes the way our illusion is born. And it says, in the phenomenal world, the ever-flowing chain of events continuously interweave with one another, forming an immense rimless net, rolling forward without cessation. But men, having only limited capacity and interest, cannot comprehend this vast intermeshing of events with self-determination that's not the self-determination that we are talking about in terms of practice. With self-determination, he cuts off this ever-flowing chain and designates one point therein as the beginning and another as the end of a particular incident, like the day that begins and end, ends. Gradually and consciously, he begins to forget the fact that the very concept of a beginning and an end were first created for the sake of expediency and make sense only when a particular event is referred to. So when we speak of a day, it makes sense. But it does not go beyond that, speaking of or about a day. So instead, he goes on from the particular to project a concept of absolute beginning. We have to highlight this absoluteness. Absolute beginning, a first cause, an unmoved mover and the like. And then further extends these ideas and elaborates them into theological and philosophical systems. Thus exaggerating their, their theological significance to an excessive degree. And to the best of our knowledge, no one has ever experienced an absolute beginning prior to which nothing existed. And this is how we need to examine, right? Or what we need to examine. The first cause or absolute beginning has no logical or empirical basis. The beginning of event Y is always the simultaneous end, or end of event X. The ending of event B is always the beginning of event G. It may sound abstract to us, but it's all highly relevant, highly relevant to our day-to-day -day existence and to the way we interact with each other, the way we see ourselves. In relation to our own life, we said that there is a beginning which we call birth or my birth, and there is an end which we call death. And on a relative level, that would be true. But it is not true in an absolute or fixed sense. Because the emergence of any form, any form, is always a continuation of a previous expression, 
which had a relative end as well. And the dissolving of a form is always the beginning of another expression, which is continuing without interruptions. Everything continues. And everything connects with everything. So how do we, how do we see ourselves in such a way? Or how can we step out of the way we see ourselves? The segmented way we see ourselves with a relative beginning and a relative end in the midst of no beginning and no end. Or we can say that my beginning and end is an expression of no beginning and no end. Which means, yes, there is a beginning and an end of me, or what I call me, but that me is an expression of what does not begin and does not end. And more than that, it's an expression of that which moves all at once in all directions. Because it has no beginning and no end. And because it's not linear as we see it. Only ideas or expediency of beginning and end move in such a way, in a linear way. And again, it makes sense to use such expediency. But it is greatly problematic when we see it in absolute sense. And since on an, an essential level, there is no beginning and no end, everything is interconnected and every appearance is nothing but an expression of that same unifying totality. Or as Paling said so eloquently, each branch of coral supports the moon. And so the purpose of this herb-blown sword is to cut the illusion of gaps between past, present, future, between self and other, between sentient and non-sentient, between the known, unknown, between form and emptiness. To cut the gaps, or to cut through the illusion of separate. So when we use this sword, which is always at our disposal, we cut the two to one and blur the outer appearance of a fixed framework we superimpose on ourselves or on others or reality. And it is the release of our attachments to the thoughts and feelings that only seem to inform us, seem to inform us, of solid parameters. Now it's not, it's not cutting as rejecting or pushing away. 
Because what it is cutting, essentially, is what is made up. So this act of cutting, which I think can seem startling to us, it's actually startling us in our dream. But this act of cutting is actually an act of coming to life. It's life-giving, not life-taking. All it is taking is what is created, not what is. Because we are deeply attached to what we create, and it does feel like a limb is being cut off. This is why we rail against it. You can't take away my drama. It's as if I die. And it does feel this way. There's no way around that. It's just that we have to experience and examine and examine and experience. And so to use this thought, we need to cultivate and sharpen our awareness during Zazen and then continue to use and sharpen it throughout everyday moment-by-moment activities in a pragmatic and, and deliberate way. Not just, I said this morning, and therefore it should do something for me or with me today. So again and again, we have to we have to remember that practice may appear to be abstract, but it's not. It's highly practical and deeply relevant to what we go through. So I came across uh, Chogyam Trumpa's simple guidance on how to cultivate awareness in Zazen and daily life. And I want to share some of it with you guys today. Because it's very relevant to what we're talking about. In meditation, he says, we could use the phrase touch and go to describe the cultivation of awareness. Awareness in this case is being mindful of the sense of being. The touch part is that you are in contact You are touching the experience of being there, actually being there, experiencing the moment. And then you let go. This approach applies to awareness of your breath in the practice of meditation. And it also applies to awareness in your day-to-day living situation. In meditation, touch and go works with how we directly feel our experience. The idea of touch is that you feel a quality of existence. You feel that you are who you are. When you sit down to meditate in a chair or on a cushion, you feel that you are sitting on your seat, that you actually exist. You are there. You are sitting. That's the touch part. The go part is that you are there and then you don't hang on to it. So you feel yourself. And then you allow it to float away. You lose touch with that. You don't sustain your sense of being, but you let it go. 
So you allow the parameter, so you get in touch with something and you don't create something from what you get in touch with. So it's a portal which expands further beyond the outline of you. So you feel yourself and you exit from yourself or through yourself, if that makes sense. And he says, so first there is recollection. Then you disown this glimpse. And then you just continue whatever you're doing, cooking or brushing your teeth or driving your car. You don't have to be startled or unsettled by the glimpse. In other words, when we experience ourselves, we don't have to make anything of it. We acknowledge it and then let it go again and again. So the touch and go. You acknowledge and release, acknowledge and release which is the opposite of what we do. We acknowledge and grasp, acknowledge and grasp. So it's a refreshing way to see our practice. Then he says, sometimes there is some slight recollection that is hardly noticeable. Some awareness happens, but you may not think it is just your imagination. You think that probably nothing is happening at all. It doesn't really matter whether something is happening or not. You're not trying to document your awareness. You're only practicing it. So even awareness itself, we have to know what that means or, or maybe what it doesn't mean, right? So we have to know to not attach ourselves to the idea of awareness. Because what is awareness? How can we describe it? How can we know awareness? Right? To know awareness is to step out and observe it from a fixed position. To know awareness, in a way, is to be unaware of awareness. And he continues, the practice of recollection may seem like an insignificant thing to do. You might wonder what it does for you in our lives. The chain reaction of our mental processes and the network of our habitual reactions create, often create a whirlpool of confusion. We're not just subject to or living in this whirlpool at this moment, we're also manufacturing confusion for the future. I think it sounds familiar to most of us. Maybe not in such a way of describing it, but I think we know what it is. We keep generating a chain reaction of confusion because we think that it provides us with security for the next minute or the next month or the next year. We want to make sure that there is something to hang on to. Yeah. Because if it's not for that, there is nothing to hang on to. So we have to create something to grab a hold on to. 
And then he ends by saying, generally people enjoy living in the world of confusion because it is much more entertaining. Right? It's good, we entertain ourselves. Very self-sufficient. We don't need to watch Netflix. Even suffering itself, he says, is entertaining in a strange way. Therefore, we create further neurotic security over and over again on that ground. Although we may complain and we suffer, we also feel quite satisfied with our own lives. We have chosen our own self-existence. What well, we have created and then chosen our own self-existence. So, that's what he had to say. And I think that in most situations, we may not feel as if we are choosing to create confusion. Or aware that we are manufacturing discontentment and suffering. And partially, this happens partially because we often function on an automatic mode. And partially because we find comfort and security in, fam in familiar states of being, even when they, even in the case where they cause great harm or suffering. And this is where the practice of awareness can really make a difference. When we become aware of our state of being and the kind of thoughts we gravitate to, we may find that we can shift the attention from the cyclical repetitive thinking patterns to the newness and freshness of life that is always offered to us. Instead of going down the same familiar rabbit holes, we can choose, and actually this choosing may be more available for, to us than realizing that we choose to create the suffering. We can choose to pay attention So instead, instead of paying attention or giving so much weight to the drama or the thoughts about the drama, we can shift the attention and expand it to what is. And this can have a direct wholesome impact on our state of being which will then naturally permeate and ripple through other beings' environment in inconceivable ways. In ways that we will mostly, will never be unaware of. Now, the infinite magnitude of interconnectedness is beyond our ability to comprehend or figure out through intellectual process. But, but we can experience this permeation in the way it manifests in our body, in our interactions with other beings, with our environment. We can witness it by observing animals, by experiencing hike in the mountains or forest, or even while walking in a busy and loud city. We cannot understand but we can verify through experience. And I think that's plenty. 
as long as we're okay with not having an intellectual understanding of it. We look at our body, we see how everything affects everything. We feel interconnectedness. You know, interconnectedness is an ancient and timeless language that we all know on an intrinsic level. But because we're so disconnected, we have been disconnected from it for such a long time and we forgot that we speak this language, it feels like a foreign language. But it is, it is the language in which everything communicates with everything. We have to learn to trust it. We have to learn to go beyond the thinking processes which we are very attached to. I was teaching a class last week in the city and, and somebody after class was asking me about how to how to work with the delaying response to an attack. So if somebody's attacking, if you are the, ones, the one being attacked, you have to move in response to the attack. And he said, I feel a delay in my movement. So I'm, I'm moving too late. So what can I do with that? So I stood in front of him and I told him to walk towards me and then without doing anything with the arms, just walk towards me. So I, I, he had his right foot forward. I, I had my right foot forward. We faced each other. So he walked, he took st one step towards me. And as soon as he took a step, I moved in response to that, moved back a step and another step. And then I told him, I'm going to do the same with you. Now I'm going to move forward. And I want you to, in response to me, move back. And as soon as I started to move, there was a bit of a split-second delay in his movement, and then he moved. And again, a delay, and then he moved. And what happens is that he was thinking about moving, and the thought about moving delayed the response. In other words, he did not communicate with me on a deeper level of center-to-center center or level of being. He did not use that language of interconnectedness, he brought it into his mind to try to figure it out, then he moved. And it was very clear to see the delay. It was a split second, but that's all it takes to see that there is a delay in the movement. And I, then I thought, okay, let's try something else. I'm gonna move, I want you to imagine that there is, between our centers, there is a rod attached to my center and attached to your center. Just a rod. So then just look at that. Look at my center and imagine a rod connecting us. And then I moved and he actually moved with me. We moved together as if one body. And it's a language. And, and what I was trying to do with him or what we're trying to do is bring it down to what we call center-to-center -center connection. 
which at that level, the mind does not interfere or does not try to claim ownership or does not even try to understand. There's no need to understand. And that's the good news. We don't need to understand, but we need to move. We need to obey, we need to listen. We need to listen to each other on a much deeper level. This is why it's, we have so many miscommunications with each other. We don't see each other or listen to each other on a deeper level and then all that gets bounced around is thoughts and emotions completely disconnected with reality, from reality. So a bounce, they bounce around from one person to another and we get bits and pieces of information. It's very challenging to, to work together like that. It's actually very challenging to love each other like that or accept each other. So it is, it is a language that we have to sit with in Zazen, recognize, and then speak it. Non-verbally, then verbally. In other words, it doesn't exclude words. But it knows how to use words in a much more flexible way than we use words. We often startled or, or react to words because we see words in very fixed way, in very absolute way. You said that to me, you must have meant that. What is that? Because in my mind, that word has an absolute meaning. So we have to be willing to go deeper. Now it is said that the Buddha's mind has only one realm and that is of direct realization. It says the Buddha never thinks, quote unquote, but always sees, not through these eyes, but the third eye, the Buddha eye. This is to say that no thinking or reasoning process ever takes place in the Buddha's mind. He's always in the realm of direct realization. Or we can say that it is an interconnected, is an interconnected state of being in which the perceiver and what is being perceived are integrated. So that's a very, that's very much a deeper level of communication with one another. So when we hear something, instead of taking it in to the thinking mind and trying to figure it out, we can actually feel the being before the word was uttered. The being is trying to communicate. The words are surface, useful, but surface. 
So center to center, being to being. So one particularity is communicating with another particularity and both are unified with the same totality. Not creating totality. We can't. But we can realize it. The verse. When it is necessary to even the uneven. That's the first line. So when we find ourselves entangled by life's challenges, when we get caught up in the drama-making vortex, when we witness judgments, discrimination, when we witness the madness of a war, when we face the impermanent nature of our loved ones, or our own impermanent nature, it is necessary, imperative, that we turn to the source and experience unity in the midst of this divisiveness. When is it not necessary to even the uneven? That's the first line. The second line, even the great adept seems inept. So when it's time to even the uneven, even the great adept seems inept. And the pointer says, all summer I've been verbosely making up complications and almost entangled and tripped up all the monks in the land. As Nansen said to Zhao Zhu once, if you try to go towards it, you move away from it. Because the it is seeking itself there is a sense of feeling lost. How can it find itself? How can we understand it through explanations? So we listen to explanations, we hear words. But then what he's saying here, all summer long I've been talking, and all I've done is just got you more entrapped, more entangled, because you think that my words are going to provide a solution. Because you came here for a solution. So, as eloquent as he is, or as this is, he's saying even the most eloquent cannot explain it. And the next line, sometimes on the finger, sometimes in the palm, because it's everywhere. Leaning against the sky, it shines on the snow. Even the great smith cannot hone it. Even the master craftsman wouldn't finish polishing it. It is exceptional, unique. Each branch of coral supports the moon.
it's not common for the last line of the verse to echo the koan like that, the last line of the koan. But it says it all. Now, each of us is an expression of the totality. Each of us, each thing. And each of us is an expression of the same totality, regardless of what we feel and think about ourselves. Even if we don't feel that way, still it is so. And then the unifying power of totality fully supports everything. So when we practice Zazen, we sit down and we turn towards it. And then we verify it through experience. And then we move on to express it in our lives. And we have the privilege and this awesome responsibility to be a living manifestation of this all-embracing totality. It's an awesome responsibility to be a human being. So important, very important that we know how to use this being to do good. So again and again to turn towards unity. Not to mind so much where we are different or how we're different as much as to turn to where we are the same. To turn towards that, to study, to experience that and then to communicate with each other from there. And this is our task for the next 90 days, right? To explore this deeply and then offer each other support and encouragement. It's gonna be an incredible journey. Bumpy at times, guaranteed, but still incredible. So, thank you for tagging along for the ride and for making this happen.